Welcome to a special mini solo episode of NostalgiaCast, your weekly roundup of the best and most up-to-date nostalgic news, where I discuss the stories and give my thoughts. I am your host, who prefers Norm MacDonald to Colin Jost, or maybe Kevin Nealon, both pretty solid, Andrew Price. And on today's special mini solo episode, unfortunately, due to a series of scheduling conflicts, we weren't all able to get together and do an episode this week. So I decided to just do one on my own. Dad beats! Back to regular scheduled programming next week. Uh, yeah. So let's just get into it because it's just me. We don't have to talk about what everyone was doing. I've been doing nothing, absolutely nothing. Haven't left my house in two months. For the first time in two months, me and my wife and our sons were going to drive down to the beach in Malibu to see the bioluminescence in the in the uh, ocean because it's red tide. We drive 25 minutes to Malibu, which normally would take like two hours, but there's no traffic. And our car just breaks down. You have to get it towed, have to get picked up, never leaving the house again. Even after they reopen things. Just never leaving again. Before we get into the stories, we have a new update about the, uh, the the ongoing movie theater situation in the United States and the uh, the existential crisis that the uh, movie theater business is having. Uh, so the latest news is that Amazon is rumored to buy AMC theaters. And the very rumor that Amazon might buy AMC caused their stock to surge. While neither company is currently acknowledging the speculation, AMC's stock is tearing higher is tearing higher today as traders on Wall Street consider that Amazon may still be interested in buying the beleaguered theatrical exhibitor. The Daily Mail reported the story, although acknowledged that in their own report that the e-commerce giant's interest in the chain may have already soured. The report made clear, though, that the world's largest exhibitor had been in talks with Amazon about a potential takeover as its business was ravaged in the wake of the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it makes a ton of sense because, uh, you know, Amazon's whole thing is um, strategically buying up business models. Uh, you know, they've done, they've done it in the past. You know, they've they've acquired maybe hundreds of companies, not all at the size of AMC, but they've acquired so many companies. And it's not really about whether that company is making a lot of money. It's more about like acquiring their business model, acquiring their stake in the in that particular industry. So it makes a lot of sense that AMC, you know, they did it with with Whole Foods a while back. Uh and, and, you know, the, the reason why they bought Whole Foods was because not because they wanted to have a grocery store chain or Whole Foods was super valuable to them in some way. Uh, Whole Foods was in financial dire straits at the time. And uh, Amazon wanted the ability to collect customer data in a real life setting uh, because Amazon's all about collecting data. And, you know, there's only so much data you can collect on somebody uh, through the Internet. Uh, you know, you can you can look at what they are looking at. You can look at, you know, what they're buying on Amazon, which is, you know, on Amazon, largely you're buying, um, you know, things that you would spend disposable income on big purchases. Um, I mean, I think I think a lot of people do use 
uh, Amazon for buying groceries and things like that. But, you know, I think it's probably not as prolific as you might assume. And especially, you know, you can, it's really easy to get, I mean, now it's not easy to get in the current conditions we're in, but it's easy to get uh, the Amazon fresh groceries when you live in a city such as LA where I live um, that has, uh, you know, the, 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 the locations, the headquarters for those, uh, for those features. It's really, you know, you can get Amazon fresh to deliver something in four hours, but you know, in a, a large chunk of the country, that's not possible. Um, so, you know, they're collecting, they're collecting customer data on what people look at, uh, you know, the, the online equivalent of window shopping. Um, and then, you know, they're getting a sense of what people like big purchases that people buy and, um, little tiny impulse buy type stuff. Um, and even like little tiny stuff like, oh, I need to order a USB cable or whatever. Uh, but the thing that they can't get is this consistent day by day, week by week data on what people buy every day for their needs. Uh, and I think that was really the reason why they bought um, Whole Foods is because they had this big stake and interest in, we wanna know what people are buying every day. We, we wanna know what people are buying when they hop down to the corner store and pick up a few things. We wanna know what people are buying in their big grocery runs, um, essential amenities, um, things like that. And so it makes a lot of sense that they would be like, okay, so now that AMC is floundering, they're the biggest theater chain in the world. We could buy this company on the cheap, and suddenly we're in we're in the exi- in the exhibition game. Uh, we have uh, the, our our finger in the pie of uh, theatrical exhibition, um, and the, the 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 properties of what they could do with that are are endless. You know, all all of the you know having screenings of Amazon Prime movies and shows and theaters. And you have to have, you know, if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can get like discounted tickets to see it. You know, there, there's so many things that they could do with it. Uh, and while obviously things like the this are not good, um, this is not something you want to see. I mean, AMC was already this huge mega corporation. Uh, but you know, to see another even bigger mega corporation uh, swoop in and absorb this and just eat up a bigger chunk of the pie of our, you know, our national consumerism, you know, it 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 uh, you know it's it doesn't bode well. Um, there's a part of me that uh, the part of me that grew up loving to watch movies like Blade Runner and Dark City and George Romero films. And, uh, you know, any other manner of post-apocalyptic type media. Uh, there's a part of me at the back of my mind that always just like my ears prick up at this kind of news because it's, there's a romantic part of me that's just like, ooh, that sounds really apocalyptic. And unfortunately, I feel like people of my generation, through a combination of the types of movies and media that we consumed, and also the fact that we've grown up in a very relatively conflict-free society where we haven't really had any big, you know, uh, major life altering tragedies other than, you know, a few notable ones. Uh, Stuff like this tends to kind of seem appealing where you almost just like want to live in this weird post-apocalyptic dystopia. Uh, And maybe, maybe we will. Um, So, so getting into these stories first and foremost, and it brings me immense pleasure to be able to talk about this 
on an episode whenever we don't have Kirk on. Just something about that just brings me a lot of joy. Uh, Prince and the Le- Revolution's live 1985 concert is going to stream on YouTube for coronavirus relief. Uh, the Prince Estate, in partnership with YouTube, will host a three-day streaming event of Prince and the Revolution Live. The legendary concert filmed toward the end of the Purple Rain Tour in Syracuse, New York on March 30th, 1985. The show will be available on Prince's official YouTube channel for three days only, beginning on Thursday, May 14th, and continuing through 11.59pm on Sunday, May 17th. In collaboration with YouTube and Google, the streaming event will run in support of the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund for the World uh, Health Organization, uh, powered by UN Foundation and Swiss Philanthropy Foundation. Any viewer donations will include a matching component from Google. Uh, Google.org will match $2 for every $1 up to $5 million. Uh, the concert, which was originally released as a VHS video and was long out of print before being reissued as part of the Purple Rain Deluxe Edition in 2017, is loaded with hits like Let's Go Crazy, When Doves Cry, I Would Die For You, Purple Rain, 1999, and Little Red Corvette, as well as, rarity, as, well as rarities like Possessed and How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. The reason why this is notable is because, you know, as it kind of said there, Prince is like the musical performing artist equivalent of... Disney mixed with Bill Watterson, the guy who created Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin and Hobbes, you know, Disney, you know, they've always been big on this whole thing of like putting things into the vault and uh, their whole business model has always been based around scarcity and making their content feel rare and, um, you know, like, like getting to see it is like this special event. Um, and they've been doing that all the way back throughout most of the history of their company. Uh, you know, back in the day is just a short little historical fun fact. Um, the reason why we have stuff like DuckTales um, is because, you know, DuckTales, the show that we all know and love, um, was actually based on uh, comics from the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, the Uncle Scrooge comics, uh, which were, you know, the the many misadventures of Scrooge McDuck and uh, his nephew, uh, Donald Duck, and his grandnephews, uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Um, and, you know, those books are amazing. Some of my favorite comics of all time. Here we go. So uh, I'm holding here uh, this hardbound collection of uh, Uncle Scrooge comics by Carl Barks. Uh, he was a great uh, comic artist and writer who was uh, instrumental in bringing the character of Scrooge McDuck to life. And, you know, if you, if you, if you look through this book, um, you know, just, uh, just amazing, amazing artwork, really well-crafted stories. I mean, anybody out there who's, you know, just who, who thinks of comics about Scrooge McDuck and immediately just thinks like, Oh, there's just these throwaway, like, cheap Disney comic books. Uh, you know, these are some of the most well-crafted comics in history. Um, and they're also, uh, they also served as major inspiration for a lot of the, uh, the, 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 um, the movies that you grew up loving. There's literally on the cover, there's a quote. It says, it says a priceless part of our literary heritage uh, from George Lucas, who, George Lucas actually wrote the introduction to this book, and that is because uh, 
filmmakers such as George Lucas and Steven Spielberg uh, grew up loving the Uncle Scrooge comics and uh, they greatly inspired them in their films. Uh, and you can see a lot of the inspiration from Uncle Scrooge in movies like the Indiana Jones movies. Um, Uncle Scrooge is definitely a proto-Indiana Jones style hero, just an intrepid explorer. Um, but anyway, these books are great. Uh, some of my favorites. But the reason why these exist is because back in the 30s, uh, <clears throat> you know, Disney was expanding its empire um, and they were wanting to uh, branch out and create more content across mediums. Um, uh, and so, you know, they wanted to do things like make television shows. And I mean, this is in the 30s this is later. I'm kind of overshooting it more like the late 40s and 50s. Uh, they wanted to make television shows and they wanted to make comic books, um, but they didn't want to take their iconic characters like Mickey Mouse. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, Goofy and, and Donald Duck weren't as iconic as they are now, but Mickey Mouse um, and, uh, you know, some of these, you know, Minnie Mouse, all these, you know, the, the, the main iconic Disney characters, they didn't want to put them in the comics because... Uh, they wanted to make those exclusive. Like you could only see Mickey Mouse by going to the movie theater and seeing the Disney shorts or by going to Disneyland. That was the only way that you could see Mickey Mouse. He was exclusive. He wasn't just some throwaway character that you could see in a TV show um, or see in a comic book. You had to go to the theater to see him. So because they didn't want to allow any of these characters to be used in these like lesser quote unquote mediums, um, they, they had, you know, their, they had their, their, uh, you know, their teams of people working at these comic companies and stuff like that, create new characters, um, that could fit into the Disney universe, but, you know, be utilized for once again, these quote unquote lesser mediums. So in the spirit of that, um, uh, characters like Scrooge and McDuck were created. Um, so <laughs> I can't believe I just went off on that crazy tangent, dear God. Um, this is probably not even going to be a mini episode, um, but much the way that I, it just occurred to me how insane that diversion was. Um, I forgot what I was even talking about until just now. I'm talking about Prince guys. Um, so, uh, much like Disney and their whole, you know, thing of like putting, putting movies and characters into the vault and keeping everything exclusive. Um, and much like uh, the creator of Calvin Hobbes, uh, Bill Bill Watterson, uh, and the whole thing with Bill Watterson is, you know, not only was he notoriously reclusive, you know, you can't get an interview with him, you can't talk to him, he just likes to live on his own and be out of the public spotlight and, and uh, you know, he's, and just live in his retirement. Um, you know, he created Calvin and Hobbes, which became, a, you know, a sensation back in the 80s. It became one of the most popular comic uh, comic book characters of all time. And there was a huge demand for it. Um, but, uh, you know, number one, not only did Bill Watterson uh, just not want to do any kind of merchandising for it. So he was just he owned the he owned the IP to, to Calvin and Hobbes. And, uh, you know, he just he never had any interest in developing any kind of additional merchandising for it. He didn't want to do TV shows. 
obviously everyone was chomping in the bit for a Calvin and the Hobbes, Calvin and the Hobbes, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Nope. Didn't want to do a cartoon. Uh, everyone wanted, everybody wanted the fucking Hobbes stuffed animal. Nope. Can't get one. Uh, there's never been an official Hobbes stuffed animal ever produced to this day. Um, no stickers, no coffee mugs, no fucking clocks that sit on the wall of Hobbes's eyes going back and forth. No merchandising whatsoever. Uh, and not only that, but whenever he decided that Calvin and Hobbes was over, he ended it. And that was it. They wanted Calvin and Hobbes to run forever. They'd probably still be running Calvin and Hobbes to this day. Uh, you know, Peanuts still runs to this day. Um, but no, he, he ended it when he ended it. And he was like, nope, no more Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, so Prince was kind of a combination of the two. You know, he he was obviously notoriously reclusive. He was also very prolific. Uh, he made a ton of music, almost almost more of it that you have never heard in your entire life than has ever been released. Um, and famously, he would record this music and then he would put it in his vault and, you know, never to see the light of day. And, you know, the whole the whole mythos around him is that he's got this vault with years and years and years of music that you've never heard um that's never been heard by anybody uh and so you know he would do stuff like this all the time he would film some concert professionally or he would record an album or whatever it was or make a movie and then he'd just be like i just made that for myself it goes in my vault nobody gets to see that so you know he did this concert film live 1985 and, you know, it went into the vault. And then eventually at one point it was released on VHS, but they did, you know, their, the print of it and then it went out of print and then that was it. And if you didn't have that VHS, then you never got to see this. And then uh, eventually it was released on this DVD set. And that was like the first time it had been made available publicly for decades. Um, so now it's, it's, it's kind of crazy and unprecedented that this would just stream on YouTube. And the reason for that, unfortunately, is because Prince is dead and his estate is just exploiting the fuck out of his content. So now you're going to see all these box sets released and you're going to see all these posthumous albums being released and all this shit. Um, and the reason for that is because the Prince estate's like, we just want to, we, we try to make the money. Uh, so, you know, an unfortunate thing for the legacy of Prince and his wishes, but uh, good for Prince fans. Uh, I... I I, I'm definitely gonna watch this. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 this is gonna be great. Um, I, and I, you know, definitely think Kirk is gonna be right there with me. Uh, not literally right there with me. Social dis distancing has been extended for another three months in California, but uh, you know, we'll be texting each other. <clears throat> um, so, uh, Deadpool, the the creator of Deadpool, Rob Liefeld. Uh, has recently said that uh, Deadpool 3 is unlikely to happen at Marvel. Um, so in a recent interview, he said uh, Marvel Studios has zero plans to make Deadpool 3. Uh, in an interview with Inverse, Liefeld was asked what the chances still are for a Deadpool X-Force movie now that, characters, now that the characters are under the Disney MCU umbrella, and his response was not encouraging. He said, I don't know. Here's what people don't want to hear, but thank God I'm a realist. I feel like Deadpool, the movies, they've set sail. Uh, we've got two brilliant movies, and we live in a culture that always looks forward because they're 
uh, ever selling us, uh, all they're ever selling us is next, next, next. It's the fever. For me, as the fever calms down, people just need to calm down and realize that Deadpool 1 and 2 were released within two years of each other, 2016 and 2018. And I just can't, I'm not really that crazy about Marvel's plans right now. Liefeld finds the MCU's Phase 4, which includes Black Widow, The Eternals, and Shang-Chi, and The Legends of the Ten Rings, a less than exciting lineup uh, than what preceded it. And it's a lineup without any X-Men or mutant-related movies in it. Um, he added that even if Marvel Studios were to start work on, Deadpool, on a Deadpool movie today, it would come out in four years. I can't get excited about that. Um, know what their plan for Deadpool is right now? Goose egg. Zero. Uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings about this, um, cause I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, hot take, but, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Deadpool. Um, I think I've, I've talked about this on previous Nostalgicast episodes. I think he's one of the most overrated comic book characters of all time. Uh, number one, uh, Rob Liefeld fucking sucks. Uh, number two, Deadpool is a pretty cool character. I'm not saying that Deadpool sucks. Uh, it's it's probably the greatest thing that Rob Liefeld ever created. And the only reason why it was ever even anything is because it was taken over by other better writers um, and artists than him. Uh, but even then, you know, Deadpool has got this, this gimmick. He's a gimmicky character. It's like, okay, I've got the healing factor of Wolverine and I'm a... I'm a ninja mercenary and I've got this fourth wall breaking thing and I talk to the audience and that can be done cool, but by and large, it's just been done in a very gimmicky way. And it's just one of those, it's just, you know, the whole like, I love tacos and all that. It's just this very kind of like 90s slash early 2000s, like random humor, uh, very gimmicky. And I'm just not a huge fan. And, you know, as much as, as much as I ever liked Deadpool as a comic book character when I was younger, uh, the movies are okay. I mean, they're uh, to sit there and say the movies are not good or well-crafted would be insane and a lie, but I'm just not, it's just not my thing. Uh, I just think they're, I think they're just a little gimmicky. I think they're a, a little overrated. Uh, there are a lot cooler Marvel characters. There are a lot cooler Marvel stories to tell. Obviously Ryan Reynolds is great as Deadpool and he's perfect for the role. But you know, I just think they're a little overrated. Not 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 my not a not my thing. Uh, but also, I think that Rob Liefeld is just kind of talking out of his ass with this. Like Marvel, Marvel's riding high off of the first you know three phases of the MCU, leading up to Infinity War and Endgame. You know, they had a they had a great tear of monumentally successful films with, uh, you know, Civil War and Ragnarok and the, you know, Infinity War and Endgame. Endgame. Uh, they made all the money, uh, you know, but in a post-Endgame world, uh, now that they, you know, they're kind of moving forward and figuring out, like, what do we do now that we don't have Iron Man or Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man and we don't have Captain America or Chris Evans as Captain America you know, where do we go from here? You know, how do we move this forward now that we've, you know, literally toppled one of the most epic story arcs in comic book existence now that Thanos is gone, now that we've now that we've paid off that, like, whatever it is, 10 year long story arc, um, maybe longer than that. I forget when the first appearance of Thanos was in the oh, yeah, I think it was Avengers. 
in 2012. So yeah, almost a decade. Um, you know, and and they're kind of like grasping at straws a little bit, trying to bring out some other like kind of tertiary, you know, lesser known comic characters to develop into their own movies and be implemented into phase four. Um, they're trying to figure out how to incorporate, you know, some of the, the Fox properties that they purchased like Deadpool and X-Men um, and Fantastic Four into uh, the MCU. Uh, I, I just don't see them casting aside Deadpool so easily like this. Uh, you know, the highest Deadpool, two, Deadpool, I think Deadpool one was the highest grossing R-rated film of all time when it came out. I don't think that Deadpool 2 toppled that, but it was very close. It was certainly the second highest grossing um, R-rated film of all time when it came out. Um, you know, I just, I don't see, to me it sounds like fake news to to say that Disney is going to uh, put Deadpool on ice because they don't want to do an R-rated film or it doesn't fit into the MCU. I just, I don't see that happening that just sounds like the cynical um assumptions of a dude who like just doesn't like the family-friendly vibe of disney and their marvel movies um i just i just don't see disney and marvel studios just being like eh, the fucking highest rated or highest grossing r-rated movie of all time like we're, we're just gonna cancel that because we can't figure out how to put deadpool in a Avengers movie. I just, I, I don't buy that for a second. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that we'll see Deadpool three. Um, in exciting news, uh, very exciting news that I'm certainly excited for. Uh, they are officially bringing out, uh, remasters of Tony Hawk's pro skater one and two. And, uh, so the Tony Hawk pro skater franchise is making a comeback. At Summer Game Fest, Activision announced the, that Vicarious Visions is remastering Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 for release on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. The remastered games collection, collection is set to release on September 4th and will include the original levels, skaters, tricks, modes, and soundtrack. The remastered editions will also add new gameplay modes, including online multiplayer. I don't know why I said it like that. Um, Activision also announced details about pre-order uh, bonuses for the game. Those who place digital pre-orders will get access to the warehouse demo ahead of the game's launch, uh, which that's cool uh, because uh, if you if you don't know, if you didn't grow up at the time or you just forgot or just never knew, you know, weren't weren't in the you weren't in the in the know, you weren't one of the cool kids back in the 90s, uh, famously uh, before Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 came out. Uh, there were the series of demo discs and that was, you know, that was, back in the day, that was a big thing. The demo disc, you know, now you just download, uh, you know, demos that are made available on steam or in whatever e-shop for whatever console you have. Uh, but back in the day, it was the demo disc. You could get these demo discs and they would have, they would have like five minute, 10 minute, you know, maybe even 30 minute uh, demos of games where you could play like a couple levels or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, these demo discs were widely, po wildly popular because you could get them and you could play it. You could play all these different games. And there was sometimes like you'd you'd play like 
hours and hours of a of a demo of a game and you might not even if you know if you were like a one of the one of the kids who like didn't have the money to like go out and buy a bunch of games all the time like these were your games like you got a demo disc and then you just play that was what you played you just played these demos forever and you didn't even ever ever actually end up playing the real game uh and uh one of the uh most uh you know notorious uh demo discs was the was the series of demo, demo discs that they released that came with uh pizza hut pizzas you would get there was this big promotion where you'd get like some pizza hut pizza thing like a large pizza or whatever it was and you got the demo disc and there was different ones and they all had different games on them and like one of them had the final fantasy 8 demo which was where i played that and it was like you could play the first like the beginning of the game leading into like the first mission um, where you went onto the island and you fought the first like big boss. And I remember playing the shit out of that. And it 100% uh, led to me getting Final Fantasy VIII for my birthday um, that year. And uh, they also had the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater demo and it was the warehouse level. Uh, so it's really cool that they're releasing the warehouse l- demo ahead of the game's launch as a throwback to that get that uh that demo disc where that was the that was the level you got um uh those who place a physical pre-order will get a tony hawk mini fingerboard limited edition gift when they buy the game another throwback to the 90s fingerboards and tech decks it's all the rage remember going to school with my tech decks my little miniature grind rails and half pipes and doing tricks at recess um, this is the first of many planned announcements from Jeff Cayley's Summer Game Fest. Uh, Tony Hawk was hinted, has hinted that there would be big news about his pro skater, pro skater game franchise. He posted the key art for the remaster on Twitter with a celebrity or celebratory happy birthday to me. Um, an interview released along with the remaster's trailer revealed that Vicarious Visions built the remastered edition of the games with the original Neversoft code as the foundation. Which is the big story here. This is the big story. Because a handful of years ago, they released a remake of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1. So they've already done this relatively recently. But the thing is, it fucking sucked. It was terrible. It wasn't fun. Because the the thing about these games are, you know, with a a sports game, with with a skateboarding game, it's all about the feel. It's all about the way that the game feels to play. Um, and there was something about that remake where they just didn't get the feel right. It wasn't fun. The The mechanics of the game, just they just weren't the same. They didn't hit that same thing that the original games had. And so it just kind of wasn't fun. It was like, okay, you remade Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and somehow you messed up the mechanics and it's just not fun to play. So fuck this. Um, so this is really exciting that they're like, nope. We're getting this right. These are going to have the same feel as the originals. And that's the whole point. If they don't have that, then the game is trash. Um, So uh, from there, they updated the game for modern controllers and console technology, which is also important because even if they stay true to the original mechanics, they got to improve the quality of life because video games have evolved greatly since, you know, those times. And a lot of times you remember games fondly from back in the day and you're like, oh, that game was so great. And then you try to play it now and you've been spoiled by 
all of the advancements in video game, uh, you know, technology, all the quality of life improvements. And then you're just like, this game is clunky, clunky as hell. So a good remaster or remake, it stays true to the core mechanics of the game while subtly improving quality of life to where you don't notice it. But if you were to play the original without those quality of life improvements, you would think it was slow and clunky. Um, so that's 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 the balance that they got to strike. Um, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2's roster of pro skaters includes Steve Caballero, Jeff Rowley, Bucky Lasik, Alyssa Steamer, Kareem Campbell, Andrew Reynolds, Bob Burnquist, Eric Costin, Rodney Mullen, Jamie Thomas, Rune uh, Glyphberg, Chad Muska, and Tony Hawk. So all the classic lineup, um, each with their own set of special moves. The remaster brings back all the levels from the original game, including the warehouse and the bullring. Each can be played solo with new and old goals to accomplish in a local co-op or online multiplayer. The game will feature updated graphics with 4K resolution running at 60 frames per second. Um, the game also brings back the creative skater and creative park modes. Uh, these creative modes add replayability by allowing players to insert their own persona into the game and to create unique levels to test their skills and skill and, and the skills of their friends. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 will be available for $39.99. A digital deluxe version featuring unique content and gear will also be offered for $49.99. A $99.99 collector's edition featuring the extra digital content and a limited edition birdhouse deck will be released. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great price. Not not the special edition one. I mean, a lot of people, that's not bad for a collector's edition, especially if it comes with a skateboard. Uh, and I think a lot of people will, you know, be into buying that, but... For the regular game where you just get the games, 40 bucks for two games, two remastered games, that's a great price. Um, and you know, my my jams were Tony X Pro Skater 2 and 4. Those were the ones that I was really into. I played one, I definitely played that demo a lot. Uh, I played one, but for whatever reason, I didn't really get into it until 2. And you know, 2 was the one where... You know, the game was by Neversoft, and Neversoft also made the, the Spider-Man games for the PlayStation, which were also great. And so there was all these, you know, you could unlock Spider-Man as a player in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. It had all of the of the good music, you know, Gorilla Radio by by uh, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, I remember that vividly from that game. Uh, it had, uh, you know, like all these, all the cool cheats. Um and uh, I was really into Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. For some reason, I passed over three. I don't remember why. And then I came back to Tony Hawk's Pro Skater in a big way with part four. And I loved four. Four was great. I mean, it was a bigger, like, open world game. Uh, it, it had an, just an even better roster of music. Um, and yeah, so those are my two games. So, I'll, I mean, I, you know, I'll definitely be excited about playing either one of these, but two is really going to be the one that I'm going to be into. I doubt that they're they're ever going to remaster four because I just don't think four four was like the beginning of the end for the franchise. Like, it, I don't think it sold as well, wasn't as highly regarded as the other games. Um, but I loved it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I really liked it a lot. Uh, yeah. So that's exciting. Um, I wish it was coming out for the Switch, but uh, you know, I'll just wait for. I'll wait for it to be released on the Switch for $90, like all ports to Switch are. Um, but overall, exciting news. Um, so, Luca Guadagnino uh, is set to direct the Scarface reboot. 
Call Me By Your Name filmmaker Luca Guadagnino will direct a reboot of Scarface, Scarface for Universal Pictures. And before you start getting your pitchforks, I've said it before on this show, I'll say it again. Scarface is a remake. The 1983 film starring Robert De- Robert De Niro, the fuck? Al Pacino, directed by Brian De Palma, written by, blanking on his name, the guy who directed Platoon. Why am I blanking on his name? The fuck is his name? Uh, Oliver, Oliver Stone. I didn't Google that. I just had to think of it. Um, was a remake of a film from 1932, the original Scarface. So before you go clutching your pearls about them remaking a classic, it's a remake. Uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen wrote the latest version of the script with earlier drafts by Gareth Dunnett Alcoker. It's a mouthful. Jonathan Herman and Paul At- Atani- At- Atanasio. Uh, Scarface will be produced by Dylan Clark for his Dylan Clark Productions. Scott Stuber will executive produce alongside Marco Marabito. Senior Vice President Brian Williams will also executive produce for Dylan Clark Productions. The story has been adapted a number of times, most recently in the 1983 classic starring Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer. I already said that. Uh, The new pick is a reimagining of the core immigrant story told in both the 1932 and 1983 films and will be set in Los Angeles. Uh, senior VP of production Jay uh, Polidoro and director of development Lexi Barta will oversee the project for Universal. Um, yeah, so I'm not saying that this is going to be good. Obviously, I have no idea. Uh, what I'm saying is don't judge it immediately just by the mere fact that it's a remake because I've I've defended the idea, the concept of remakes before on this show. I've talked about how a remake or a reboot is not inherently good or bad. It just depends on the execution. And, uh, you know, you should not just automatically assume that a remake or a reboot is going to be bad by definition. It really depends on the execution. It depends on the intentions behind the remake uh, or reboot. Um, And, uh, you know, Scarface was already a remake. So what are you going to do? I have no great expectations for this movie. Uh, I, 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 uh, I'll be interested in seeing it. Um, I mean, it's written by Joel and Ethan Cohen. So while I wasn't a huge fan of Hail Caesar, uh, you know, I love those dudes and they have very few flops in their catalog. <clears throat> um, last story before we take a quick break, uh, head of the class is getting rebooted for HBO Max. HBO Max has ordered a pilot and five additional scripts for Head of the Class, a half-hour multi-camera comedy based on the popular 1986 ABC comedy series from American Vandal writers Amy Pocha and Seth Cohen. Uh, Uncle Buck creators Stephen Cragg and Brian Bradley, Bill Lawrence and his Doozer Productions and Warner Horizon scripted television, which produced the original series and where Doozer is based. Written by Pocha and Cohen, based on the original series created by Rich... Uh, Eustace and Michael Elias, the reimagined head of the class revolves around a group of uh, overachieving high school students who meet their greatest challenge, a teacher who wants them to focus less on the grades and more on experiencing life. Um, So yeah, they're going to reboot head of the class. It's a sitcom from the eighties, you know, that had that premise. Basically it wasn't, it was by far not one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. Uh, I think uh, most notably the biggest thing that come out of this sitcom is that uh, it was the, uh, you know, 
it was the, it was the first big break for Dan Schneider, who was one of the main cast members on the show. And Dan Schneider went on to basically create your entire childhood. He became a uh, a writer, a producer, and a creator of many of the shows that you remember from growing up. He uh, was a producer and a writer. Uh, I think he was the head writer for all these shows uh, for um, All That and Keenan and Kel and let's see, The Amanda Show, Zoe 101, Drake and Josh. Uh, later on, he ended up creating later non 90 shows like iCarly, Victorious, Sam and Cat, uh, Henry Danger. Just all these Nickelodeon live action shows dating all the way back to um, Keenan and Kel, all that Amanda show stuff you remember from the 90s. Uh, he was a, he was a writer and a producer on all these shows. Uh, I think he wrote the Good Burger movie. Um, most recently, unfortunately, it was discovered that he's basically a pedophile um, and he's been largely ostracized from the filmmaking industry because it was discovered that he was uh, doing some shady things with underage kids. Uh, so, you know, fuck that guy. Uh, he's a piece of shit. But this was his big break, and he went on to create these shows. And, uh, yeah, now that's getting a reboot. Um, the other guy in Head of the Class, one of the other cast members, ended up being the guy who owned the grocery store that Keenan worked in, in Keenan and Kel. He was his boss, that boss character. Uh, but yeah, so they're remaking that. Uh, I have no huge affinity for Head of the Class. I remember it. Definitely d didn't really care for it all that much. Um, but now it's getting remade. We'll see how that goes. Uh, so yeah, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do a special solo edition of Can You Go For That? After these messages, we'll be right back. And we're back. And now it's time for our regular segment where we talk about rumors and unsubstantiated nostalgic news and give our opinion on it. Except for it's just going to be me giving my opinion on it this time. That segment is called... Can you go for that? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, can you? Oh, can you go for that? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, can you? Oh, can you go for that? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, can you? Oh, can you go for that? Can you go for that? Can you go for that? Got a couple stories for Can You Go For That today. First one, it is rumored that Natalie Portman is going to reprise her role as Queen Amidala Padme in the Obi-Wan Disney Plus show. Uh, the Skywalker saga may have come to an end last year with the release of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. However... Fans will be able to revisit certain parts of the saga thanks to Lucasfilm's Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Cassian Endor. Andor, sorry. Uh, mixed up two different Star Wars things. Uh, while there isn't that much information about what Lucasfilm has planned for Obi-Wan Kenobi, there are rumors circulating online saying that Natalie Portman may appear in the highly anticipated Star Wars series. According to reports by Inside the Magic, Lucasfilm is looking for another fan favorite Star Wars actor to appear in Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Padme Amidala star Natalie Portman may be that very person. Sure, it might seem unlikely for Padme to return considering her death in Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. However, Disney may want Portman to return for a short flashback cameo in the series. 
Perhaps Lucasfilm could feature scenes where Obi-Wan, played by Ewan McGregor, tries to remember the time that he spent together with Anakin and with Padme Amidala. It isn't entirely impossible. After all, Obi-Wan will be left to find homes for Padme's children, Luke and Leia. So yeah, you know, they're coming out with this Obi-Wan Kenobi show. It's obviously going to be, you know, about Obi-Wan Kenobi later on in between the events of uh, Revenge of the Sith and the first Star Wars movie, you know. The, the lost years and uh you know the, it doesn't make I mean unless it, it it's got to be a flashback because she's dead so it would it could only be a flashback um and you know sure I guess I guess I can go for that if the show is gonna exist and they have a flashback and Natalie Portman has a cameo in it and reprises her role as Padme sure I love Matt, Natalie Portman a cameo like that might be fun you know she's she's obviously too old to uh flash back to her as a teenager uh which is what she was um so maybe they could de-age her and fine i guess that's fine uh i don't I, you know i'm a little i don't have much of a pain of an opinion about that like sure it could only be a cameo if we were talking about if we were talking about re- bringing Natalie Portman back for like a consistent role, it would be a whole other different story. This would be a bigger conversation, but it could only possibly be a flashback or like he sees some video that she left behind, you know, like a hologram video or you know whatever. There's a there's an artificial intelligence that was patterned off of her life, and so it has her face. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, the other, the other girl who was Padme's like body double who would trade places with her, um, and pretend, you know, and pretend to be queen while she was assuming the role of one of the queen's handmaidens. Maybe it's that girl because they were like identical, uh, which also fun fact that was played by Kira Knightley. Um, cause at the time they looked very identical. Um, you know, maybe maybe it'd be something like that, but it couldn't be that she comes back in, into the Star Wars universe because she's dead. So, sure, um, I can half-heartedly go for that. Um, and then this second story, which is much, much bigger deal, a Rugrats reboot is rumored to premiere on Nickelodeon this fall. The world's favorite cartoon babies are soon heading back to the small screen as Nickelodeon's planned Rugrat revival series will reportedly premiere on the network this fall. For a new online video produced by Vanity Fair, famous voice actress Nancy Cartwright reviews impressions of many of her biggest characters, and that includes Chucky Finster from Rugrats. Additionally, the outlet also reports that Cartwright will be reprising the role of Chucky for the upcoming Rugrats reboot, and that the updated series is set to debut on Nickelodeon in fall of 2020. Back in 2018, it was reported that Nickelodeon had ordered a 26-episode revival of Rugrats to be executive produced by original creator uh, series creators Arlene Klasky and Gabriel Casupo and Paul Germain. Uh, details on the product project have since been scarce, and it's not entirely clear at this point if the revival will remain will maintain the same look as the original series. However, it appears at least one major member of the Rugrats cast will re- will be returning. Given the reboot, a report that Nancy Cartwright will be voicing Chucky once again this year, last fall Cartwright had tweeted about her excitement over coming back to reprise the role so many years after it was released. Um, uh, and, you know, I can go for that. I think a lot of people are going to be against this. A lot of the nostalgia heads, a lot of the 
people who are, you know, grew up in the 90s and are really into 90s, 90s nostalgia and they hate the idea on its face of reboots and remakes and they think that, you know, uh, studios are ruining our childhood for for money and all that stuff. And, you know, you know my opinion on that. You know, you know that I think that that's kind of dumb. And I think that uh, reboots and remakes are not inherently bad or good. It all depends on how they're executed. But I will say this. And once again, this is kind of unpopular opinion. Uh, but, you know, in the last several years, as they've uh, rebooted um, a lot of nostalgic TV shows from the 80s and 90s, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Some of it's been bad. Some of it's been really bad. Um, but there's been some really good stuff. I think that the DuckTales reboot is great. I watch it with my son. I love it. Uh, the Muppet Babies reboot is also really good. I watch it with my son. Uh, it's, I don't love it as much as I love the DuckTales reboot, but it's it's solid. Um, this could be good. This could be perfectly good. Um, the fact that they'd be, they would get the original voice cast back is even more reassure is even more assuring that uh you know this isn't just like a, a hard reboot where they're just recasting everybody or whatever like they're gonna get the original voice actors back so this is less of a reboot more of a just like sequel or like picking back up where they left left off that's promising um it's being done by the original creators it's not just being done by some random other people i think this could be great i can definitely go for that also in terms of a rumor, this rumor is really far along. Uh, apparently, this is just going to be coming out soon. So apparently, it's already, you know, it's a rumor, but it seems like a pretty far along, pretty like, this is basically true rumor. If they're already talking about releasing episodes, can definitely go for that. Give me the rats. Nakey good, nakey free. A baby's got to do what a baby's got to do. Fucking, there was this... There was a period of years, decades maybe, where I had this one random little thing stuck in my head and it would always pop into my head and I would always think about it. You know how whenever you just get this random little repeating mimetic thing stuck in your head and you think it all the time, periodically for years, every once in a while, it's just inevitable that it's going to pop in your head. And sometimes you say it out loud. And sometimes it just becomes this weird little nervous tick that you have. And for years, <clears throat> I had this thing in my head. And it was, I'll twy. I would just get that. I would get that in my head. Just that sound, that phrase being said by somebody. I'll twy. And I had no idea where it was from. I, I literally had this thing stuck in my head for decades. And I had no idea. And there was no hope of me ever remembering what it was. It was gone. <coughs> it was it was just a thing. It was a it was a uh, you know it was it was a piece of data that was corrupted, and it was jangling around in my brain, and there was no hope of ever triangulating the origins of it for years, for literal years. I'll try. And one day, a couple years ago, I figured it out. It just it as soon as 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 sure and as soon as it was not there it was just there in the in the in the in the negative space where nothing uh resided in a flash it was suddenly occupied by this knowledge and i suddenly remembered that it was from the episode of rugrats where Stu, tommy's dad gets knocked on the head and then he becomes a baby he thinks he's a baby and he can communicate with the babies so he gets hit over the head, 
and this head injury causes him to revert to a baby stage and he can talk to the babies. And so he becomes their friend and they love, you know, he loves that his dad can communicate with him and he's become a baby like him. And the episode culminates in them having to fix, I think he gets knocked over the head by this like invention of his that's in the basement this like conveyor belt thing hits him on the head and then they're trying to fix it or stop it or something like that. <clears throat> and so they need to reach up and, and pull a lever or something on the machine. And the only one can, who can do it is Stu because he's the only one that's tall enough. But he's reverted to a baby stage, so he can't walk. But he's tall enough if he can stand up to reach this lever and pull it. And it's the thing that they need to do. It's the culmination of the episode. And... So they're like, Stewie, because he's Stewie now. And they're like, Stewie, you have to reach that. And and you have to stand up and reach that lever and pull it. And then Stewie goes, I'll twy. And then he stands up and he reaches and he pulls the lever. And in doing this, he gets hit, so he gets hit over the head again. And he turns back into Stew Pickles. And that's what that was from. Stuck in my head for decades. Uh, before we wrap up the show, last couple stories. <clears throat> the man, the myth, the legend, Ben Stiller's dad, as well as George Costanza, Costanza's, not going to acknowledge that King of Queens shit. Uh, Jerry, Jerry Stiller has died of natural causes. Actor and comedian Jerry Stiller has died due to natural causes, his son, actor Ben Stiller, said in a tweet. He was 92. He was a great dad and grandfather and the most dedicated husband to Anne for about 62 years. He will be greatly missed. Love you, dad. Uh, perhaps by most, Jerry Stiller was known for his role as Frank Costanza in the show Seinfeld, and about a decade later as Arthur Spooner on the sitcom The King of Queens. Stiller had lost his wife, Anna uh, Mira, in 2015. The two met in New York in a New York casting call in 1953, and a few short years later became the timeless Stiller and Mira comedy team, making their name in the 1960s with frequent performances on variety shows, including The Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, yeah, Jer Jerry Stiller, Stiller passed away. It's sad. It's a real sad time. Um, you know, obviously he's largely known as, as, as Frank Costanza in Seinfeld. Uh, he's done many other things. He had an illustrious career. Do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor. When you hear this tonight, after you've tucked the chitlins away into bed by, after the lights are all out, after everyone's taken off their masks and gone back into their vaults, throw on the original taking of Pelham 123. Not the remake with Denzel Washington, the original taking of Pelham 123 starring Walter Matthau and Jerry Stiller. R.I.P. And uh, last, but certainly not least, once again, I you know I hate to go out on a dark note and it, re it regrets me to say, I regret to say, <clears throat> Little Richard, founding father of rock, has passed away at 87. Little Richard, a founding father of rock and roll, whose fervent shrieks, flamboyant garb, and joyful gender-bending persona embodied the spirit and sound of the new art form uh, of that new art form, died Saturday. He was 87. The musician's son, Danny Jones Penniman, confirmed the pioneer's death to Rolling Stone. The cause of death was bone cancer, according to his lawyer, Bill Sobel. Uh, starting with Tutti Frutti in 1956, Little Richard cut a series of unstoppable hits, Long Tall Sally and Rip It Up, that same year. Lucille in 1957, and Good Golly Miss Molly in 1958. Driven by his simple, pumping piano, gospel-influenced vocal exclamations, and sexually charged lyrics. Um, <clears throat> I heard Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, and that was it, Elton John told Rolling Stone in 1973. I didn't ever want to be anything else. 
I'm more of a little Richard Silas than a Jerry Lee Lewis, I think. Jerry Lee is a very intricate piano player and very skillful, but Little Richard is more of a pounder. <clears throat> Although he never hit the top 10 again after 1958, Little Richard's influence was massive. The Beatles recorded several of his songs, including Long Tall Sally and Paul McCartney singing on those tracks and the Beatles' own I'm Down paid tribute to Little Richard's shredded throat style. Um, also, it doesn't mention here, criminally doesn't mention it here, but uh, the song um, uh, Birthday from the White Album was basically Paul McCartney trying to make a Little Richard song. His songs became part of the rock and roll canon, covered over the decade by everyone from the Everly Brothers to Kinks and Credence Clearwater Revival to Elvis Costello and Scorpions. Elvis popularized rock and roll, Stephen Zant tweeted after the news broke. Chuck Berry was a storyteller. Richard was the archetype. Little Richard's stage persona, his pompadours, androgynous makeup, and glass bead shirts uh, are also set the standard for rock and roll showmanship. Prince, to cite his own, his one obvious example, uh, owed a sizable debt to the musician. Prince is the Little Richard of his generation, Richard told Joan Rivers in 1989 before looking at the camera and addressing Prince. I was wearing purple before you was wearing it. Uh, if you love anything about the flamboyance of rock and roll, you have Little Richard to thank, said the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach, a longtime fan. And where would rock and roll be without flamboyance? He was the first. To be able to be that uninhibited back then, uh, you had to have a lot of not give a fuck. And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, I think Kirk has talked a lot about his, uh, his love for Prince on this show. Um, and I've talked a lot about... Uh, a lot of my passions and interests and things that I love on this show as well. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't think I, for whatever reason, I don't think it's ever come up. But uh, not only am I deeply, uh, passionately a fan of Little Richard, um, but, uh, you know, he was my hero growing up. Uh, he was the guy. He was the number one guy for me. And, you know, looking back on it, looking back on his impact on me and how much I idolized him and how much I loved his music when I was a kid. I have to say that I think Little Richard might be my number one favorite musical artist of all time. Um, you know, I, whenever I was a kid, uh, I had a, a lot of, a lot of love for music from the fifties. Um, you know, my, my, my grandpa was a huge fan of, uh, music from the fifties and he introduced me to a lot of it. And I spent a lot of time with him listening to, uh, you know, old music from the 50s, um, you know, the Platters, uh, the Penguins, Buddy Holly, uh, Roy Orbison, Chuck Berry, um, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the list goes on and on, you know, from uh, rock to, to country to R&B, Conway Twitty. And, uh, you know, Little Richard was number one to me. Uh, and I, and I don't even, I don't even know why or what, what that, what started that? I, I I think maybe I was always really fascinated and drawn to eccentric personalities. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense because another one of my heroes, you know, was Michael Jackson. And um, I, I, I think the raw, chaotic, emotional energy and mythos around people like that, personalities like that, really drew me and really fascinated me. And, you know, you know, uh, uh, of all of those musicians that I loved, of all musicians I loved in general, but also, you know, largely the music, the musicians I loved from the 50s, um, you know, he was the one to me that stood out the most. And, you know, he was the biggest rebel and he was the biggest, you know, 
breaker of rules and the biggest, uh, you know, just didn't give a fuck and just would, you know, just was pure animalistic energy and his personality was all his own. And I really admired that because I was a very demure, meek, quiet boy, anxious boy. And, uh, you know, people who were loud and flamboyant and owned their personalities and didn't care what anybody thought, like really interested me, really excited me and really drew me. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid looking at these album covers and seeing this crazy looking dude with this huge hair, just this like fucking crazy, crazy eyes and this thousand yard insane stare uh, looking directly at you. And just the way he stood, the way, you know, the way he stood up and the way that he put his foot up on the piano and when he played and I just I loved I loved it. I loved every moment of it. Um, and I, I idolized him. He was like the number one guy to me. He was the coolest guy I ever saw. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I loved his music. I love I love the pure, raw, animalistic, emotional nature of it. Um, so so, yeah, he was he was a hero of mine, you know, arguably my my favorite musician of all time. Um, he was one of the founders of rock and roll. Everybody has everything uh uh to, you know everybody has him to thank for everything that's come in the lineage of rock and roll um he was a monumental force a monumental personality and uh you know it's it's a it's a great tragedy that he is uh no longer on this earth anymore rip uh so on that note thanks for listening to this not so many episode because uh, I, it's, it's impossible to get me to shut up about anything. Um, if you liked this and you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to the show. Uh, we usually have, uh, three other guys on the show. Nostalgia cast is a podcast with, uh, me, uh, and co-host, uh, Kirk Pinchon, Tyler Palo and Kelby Joseph. We talk about nostalgic news and discuss our thoughts on it. Um, <clears throat> uh, if you have a friend that you think would like the show, feel free to share it with them. Um, if you have any uh, questions, thoughts, or concerns that you might want read on the show or discussed, you can email us at nostalgicastpod at gmail.com. <coughs> if you want to keep up to date with the um, news of the podcast or just the nostalgic content we are uh, posting on a daily basis, you can follow our Facebook page, the official Nostalgia Facebook page. Just search Nostalgia on Facebook, and that's us with the blue check mark next to our name. <coughs> you can follow our uh, you can you can join our Facebook group, the Nostalgia Facebook group. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at Nostalgia. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, stay stay safe, stay vigilant, stay healthy, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.